Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is with Jeremy Lachlan. Jeremy's debut novel was 2019's Jane Doe and the Cradle of All Worlds. The book took out the Australian Book Industry Award for Book of the Year Older Children, and today Jeremy is joining me to discuss his latest novel, Jane Doe and the Key of All Souls. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. We record on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, and I want to acknowledge the traditional custodians and their ongoing connection to that land. Their stories are the original stories, and I pay my respects. Final Draft explores the best of Australia's books, writing, and literary culture as featured on 2SER. The Great Conversations podcast is your chance to hear more of the discussions. The Jane Doe Chronicles begin in the faraway somewhere land of Blue Haven. Jane lives a thankless life, caring for her father and avoiding the entire township who believe that she is cursed. When Jane narrowly escapes ritual sacrifice to appease the mythical manor, she must plunge headlong into said manor to rescue her father. There she discovers she's not alone. The villainous Roth and his army of leatherheads are scouring the manor for the cradle key, a mythical object that will give its possessor control of all the worlds. In The Key of All Souls, Jane has narrowly escaped Roth, but finds herself trapped in Arakan. This desert world has been decimated by Roth's armies, and Jane finds herself at the mercy of Elsa, herself a refugee from the manor. Not knowing who to trust, Jane must unite the keys and return to the manor before Roth opens the cradle and destroys not just Jane's loved ones, but all the united worlds. Join me as we discover Jeremy Lachlan's Jane Doe and The Key of All Souls. I have a really, really special conversation that I'm about to have with an author that I can't wait to share with you. I had hoped that we could be in the studio together, but um, obviously the times we're in at the moment, we are practicing self-isolation. So I'm speaking uh, down the line from, uh, from a regional part of Australia with Jeremy Lachlan. Now, Jeremy is the author of the Jane Doe Chronicles. Book one, The Cradle of All Worlds, hurled readers into the manor, a labyrinthine series of mystical death traps. And on the way, it won the 2019 Australian Book Industry Award for Older Children. Now, the Jane Doe Chronicles begins somewhere in the faraway somewhere land of Blue Haven. Jane lives a thankless life, caring for her father and avoiding the entire township who believe that she's cursed. When Jane narrowly escapes ritual sacrifice to appease the mythical manor, she must plunge headlong into it to rescue her father. Guided only by the mysterious visions of the reclusive Winifred, Jane soon discovers she's not alone. We're now in a book two of the Jane Doe Chronicles, The Key of All Souls. Jane has discovered so much more about her life, the evil wrath, and the many worlds accessible through the manor. Jeremy, this is two fantastic books, and it is too long that I have waited to present them to people. Thank you for joining me today. <laughs> uh, thank you so much, and thanks for that great introduction. I like, as, as most authors can attest to, like we hate writing synopses, and that was just such a beautiful, a beautiful one that you, you read out. Then, thank you for that. Oh, look, I'm I'm more than happy. It's um, I've I've had a really great time reading the two books in. I guess this this time in our lives, in what we're now starting to sort of see as history unfolding, they are a beautiful way to escape to these fantastic worlds, but also a little bit of a rumination on on who we are. There is definitely some fantastic stuff in there that I want to share with the readers. So, um, oh, thank you, thank you so much. And I think, yeah, I think I think escape escapism is often underrated uh, 
in literature. It's often like genre based fiction is is often kind of brushed aside as, as fairy floss or you know popcorn entertainment or something. Uh, but there's often so much to be found within that, uh, and the ability to well, escape into different worlds, especially when the real world around you is kind of feels like it's crumbling and closing in. It's, it's such a powerful force. And I mean, this might be a time to to let listeners know that. Um Jane is 14 years old. This is uh, what would be termed YA, young adult fiction. But you are a you are a fully functioning adult type person, as I am. And, and <laughs> trying we, to be. <laughs> we love this sort of stuff. So I mean, if you're listening and thinking maybe I'll I'll get that for a younger person in my life, um, really carefully read it so you don't crack the spine first, because they're fantastic books. <laughs> oh, thank you. And I think that yeah. So I, I I wrote it as as a crossover book. So. Some people call it middle grade. Some people call it YA. I, I kind of wrote it for everybody, kids, mm. teens, and adults. And it's been really wonderful since the book came out. I've heard from kids, uh, their parents, teens, adults. Uh, a lot of people have been uh, embracing Jane and her, and her friend. So let's, let's start there then, because this is book two. This is the best time to start, because as soon as you finish book one, you know you've got another one to pick up if you were, say, you know, in a position where you had a lot of reading time. What do you want readers both new and experienced to know about Jane as, as we sort of enter the key of all souls? Well, I think I, Jane is... I mean, I, I, I love Jane. There's a lot of me uh, within her. I guess, I guess you could say all the, all the characters, they obviously all come from me. I think my personality splintered across, from, across them all. Uh, except for Roth, hopefully the main the main villain. I was about to um, say I have some questions then. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean Jane is a um, uh, she's a very a very brave girl. She's had a led had a very difficult life, uh, and then one day that life is made even more uh, difficult. Her her life that's already kind of upside down is kind of turned upside downer, mm-hmm. uh, and she has to uh, kind of rally to save the one thing she cares about more than anything, which is her dad. Um, that, that aspect is very close to my heart because I actually wrote, started writing the series when my dad was ill with a very rare form of cancer. Um, so the book starts in Cradle of All Worlds, book one. Jane is a carer for him living in the basement. And when I started writing that, I was a carer for my dad, not living in a basement, thankfully, uh, but being carer for my dad out with my mum out in uh, Griffith uh, in country New South Wales. Um, so it's very much tied up. That relationship I, I drew a lot from uh, Jane's relationship with her dad and the relationship that I had with my dad during that time. Um, it is a journey of uh, self-discovery that Jane goes along as well as a journey to save her dad and the other world. Um, so it, book one ends on a massive uh, cliffhanger, uh, which a lot of people were kind of frustrated at me about. But now... Going into book two, it is a duology, so it's one adventure split over two books. Uh, so there is a climax, and Jane's story is going to get some sense of conclusion at the end uh, of of book two. You do this really interesting thing uh, across the two books, where as a protagonist, I guess we understand Jane to be extraordinary, but across both of the books, what's really emphasised is her ordinariness compared to the other characters, and she's constantly looking at um, companions on her adventures like Violet, like Hickory, as, you know, one has lived this incredibly thousands of years long life, the other is just this incredible sort of superstar trained in every martial arts kind of assassin. 
And Jane is constantly thinking about her ordinariness amongst these adventures where she's doing extraordinary things. Yeah, I, I didn't. I mean, nobody likes an absolutely perfect hero. Um, I think the main thing you can do for, for each of your characters is to make them human. That means giving them faults. Uh, if your main character can do absolutely everything, uh, then there's no real reason for them to have a big dangerous quest in, in the first place. Um, I wanted to make Jane as human and as grounded uh, as possible. Uh, but And at the same time, I didn't want her to be the kind of stereotypical kick-ass female action hero where she's absolutely brilliant at everything. Um, Jane is, is brave, but she is a little bit hopeless at times. She's not the brightest girl. She's lived in a basement all her life on Blue Haven. She's been denied a proper education, so she's not she's not that bright. Uh, but she does have a kind of this this courageous drive and this connection to her father that she'll risk absolutely anything to get him back. So I had a lot of a lot of fun with that uh, throughout it as well. Jane constantly finds herself into the manor, which is this very dangerous place where you could walk into one room and find a, a booby trap around every, every corner. Um, and she's constantly in over her head and she's, but she's a, she's a scrambler. Like she'll, she'll never stop uh, trying to get what she wants and save the people she loves. Yeah. Now your bio actually tells us that the idea for Jane Doe, and I'm thinking also the manor came to you while lost in a Cairo museum. Can you tell us a little about, bit about that experience and the inspiration you drew from it? Yeah, so I've always loved getting lost in uh, museums and forests and, and caves and things like that because, for me, that's when the kind of what-if questions arise. Mm. Uh, you know, what if I took a different turn? What if this painting came alive? What if a velociraptor was chasing me through here? Mm. So I'm, I'm, I've always been obsessed with dinosaurs. Um, and so when I, and I, when I was in Egypt, I got lost from my, like, separated from my group uh, and just started wandering around. And it's this big old old building with just so many uh, statues and ornaments and you know, shabby figures, all of that around the place. And I just started to think, uh, what if there was an infinite labyrinth between worlds? Mm. What if it was known to an entire island full of people? What if they'd used it for thousands of years to journey through to these other worlds and return with tales to tell? But what if one day it stopped letting them inside? And what if it was all because of a child? And so that was the kind of the seed that planted the idea for this story. That was in uh, January 2007. Uh, so I spent the last kind of 13 years, is that, is that my maths right there? 12, 13 years working on these two, these two books, this one big adventure. Um, and I just decided I wanted to just fill it with all of my favourite things, all the kind of, uh, kind of iconic tropes that I've loved throughout my life, like rope bridges and shifting rooms and runaway trains, carnivorous forests all the booby traps I can, I, can, I can imagine. I noticed a distinct absence of, uh, of gift shop cafes with overpriced coffee, though. Um, <laughs> not that Look, type of Maybe that's going to come in book three. Who knows? <laughs> book three. <laughs> Jane, Jane, I'm sorry. I've just laughed so hard I've, I've accidentally kicked my, uh, my seat and, and dropped myself <laughs> about half a foot. <laughs> well, now, you can't laugh at your own jokes. There's something wrong in the world. Absolutely. So <laughs> now... The characters are really the heart of your stories, and I have so much to ask about them. Uh, But why don't I start with the balance, I guess, between building character and high-stakes action? Because if it it hasn't become apparent, dear listener, these are, you know, there, there are a series of action scenes in both books that are just page by page turner. How do you, um, how do you go about showing us the real person, the person you want us to get to know? during a horse-riding knife fight? 
It's a a great question. I think part of it uh, comes from uh, the book is written in first-person present tense, so we are in Jane's head for the entirety of, of the adventure except for the, the occasional kind of uh, interlude where we, where we jump to a third-person narrator. Um, but I think, I think that really helps keep the action grounded. Uh, it, it can be difficult at the same time because it means that because I'm constantly in Jane's head, I can't uh, explore other things that are happening in an action scene. It's all through Jane's eyes. It's kind of embracing that notion that we feel things as Jane feels them. We see things as Jane sees them. Um, and we're, even we're though deceived I, I as had Jane's these deceived. big, sorry, we're deceived as Jane's deceived. Yeah, ab- absolutely, and kind of embracing that that notion that Jane is, is lied to several times throughout throughout the novel, uh, and leading the the reader through that not just the labyrinth of the manor, but the labyrinth of the, the story that Jane is told. Uh, it, it is it does kind of hit some beats similar to like a crime novel almost as she tries to unravel the mystery. Uh, but in regarding the action sequences, I had these major set pieces that I wanted to do. As I said, I just wanted to fill it with all my favourite things. And I remember I, I kind of wrote them on pieces of paper and pieced them on the wall. So I had these big set pieces, almost almost like an action-adventure movie that I wanted to show throughout the, throughout the books. Uh, but then it is about making them human. So making sure that in each action sequence, the characters learn something new about the mystery, about their past, or about themselves. Uh, to further it, not just geographically uh, throughout the story, but emotionally as well. It was really important to keep it grounded. I'm thinking about a particular character right now, um, and I'm not going to talk about who this character is because it's a, it's a bit of a spoiler for the action in point two, but this character can't easily communicate with Jane, and, and so a lot of what we learn about this character comes from the character's actions. Is there something of that in what you're talking about, like the way the way action and the way it's displayed is actually a really good way of of building story and also building character? Absolutely. I mean, the great thing about a lack of communication is that uh, it can it can create so much tension because uh, things can, of course, be misconstrued and, and all of that. Uh, so I did I did have moments where I was I felt like I was banging my head against the wall. Like, how do I get these characters to communicate mm. with each other? Uh, but it was kind of embracing that the fact that uh, communication isn't easily always easily when you're when you're traveling to these different worlds because I didn't want to make it that in a lot of stories where you go to different worlds and, and conveniently everybody speaks English. Um, uh, the terms like English don't that doesn't even exist in in my in my in my world. Um, so yeah, it was kind of embracing that, and of course that does influence character because for someone like Jane, who often, I mean, she's quite comedic throughout it. I wanted to make this a fun read, and in those heavier moments where I felt it getting a little bit too, uh, just a bit cliched or, or too kind of overly dramatic, uh, realizing that Jane often takes the flip side and sees the funny side to something, or will try and get herself out of an awkward social situation in a in a comedic way. Uh, so it definitely helps characters in that regard. Now, thematically, you have your many and varied characters explore the, the ways we deal with loss. Roth is your sort of purely evil villain. Elsa is a, a, a character who sort of hits us by surprise and takes a major role in the Key of All Souls. And Hickory is a, a strange sort of thousands, year, thousands of years old but sort of teenaged-looking character. But they each... 
they run the gamut of character traits, but they also each have to deal with the aftermath of loss, um, losing someone incredibly dear to them, how they respond, how it drives them forward, are key motivators in the action. What did you want to portray here? Well, I mean, thank you so much for saying that. I'm so glad you picked up on that because that was really, particularly in book two, The Key of All Souls, that was kind of a moment that really, when I, when I made that discovery that for myself that so much of it was about grief and loss or looking down the barrel of losing someone that you love dearly, that kind of unlocked everything for me. You know, you're always, as, a, as an author, you're always wanting those moments where you, and it's all it's all there. You've laid the you've laid the tracks, but you haven't actually stepped back and realised it yourself yet. Mm. Um, Ross, for me, is uh, I, I love him as a villain. He actually uh, came to me in a nightmare years before I even came up with the idea for for the manor and the cradle of all worlds. Mm. Um, and it was like I often quite like nightmares. If I'm being chased by monsters and everything, I wake up and think, oh man, that was awesome. But this dream absolutely terrified me. Uh, it was a man with um, half a face, like he has this kind of porcelain mask over the lower half of his face. Um, and when I decided, when I realised I needed a villain for this for this book, I just realised he was he was perfect. But it wasn't until book one, Cradle of All Worlds, had actually gone to my publisher and gone to print that I realised how connected Roth was to the cancer that killed my dad. Mm. Um, I was walking uh, down the street and I just stopped, and it just it just hit me. Um, it sounds so obvious, but my dad died from a very rare form of cancer. It was actually in the lower trigeminal nerve on his face, and it, it kind of ate away, the cancer ate away my dad's jaw, and my villain is, is missing his jaw. It sounds so obvious, and his, his presence, Roth, is actually destroying the manor. He gives off this, this air of, this, this fog of, of uh, kind of devastation. Mm. Um, he, he's literally eating away at the manor the way the cancer does. Uh, so that was just. I, I called up my friend and said, "I can't believe it," and and told her what I what I'd realised, and she just said, "Jem, I know. I knew as soon as I read it." She was kind of waiting for me to to work it out myself. Um, and as when you're writing a big uh, adventure like this, the the whole thing is you always want to make your your hero and your villain the kind of a unity of opposites, mm. make them as uh, they're they're complete opposites, but there is something connecting them as well. Um, Realizing that Jane is looking down the barrel of losing her dad, um, Ross has, he has uh, dealt with loss a lot himself. As you say, so has Elsa and Hickory. They've all come at it from different ways. It's very much about the corrupting power of grief um, and the passing on of pain to others, whether or not you choose to, to go down that path or not. Yeah, that's that, and that's a really powerful thing to think about. And I think. I mean, conversations are never separate and books are never separate from the time they're written in. But as you were talking there, it sort of it gave me pause about, I think, the way a lot of people are probably feeling right now. Um, mm. I think there's probably a lot of uncertainty for people and people are maybe telling themselves worst case scenarios where where loss is very front of mind. And I mean, we, we're, we're seeing this. We're seeing this play out in some, some for some of us in front of us as we visit stores and the like mm. loss or the idea of loss is actually bringing out some really awful sides of people's characters and for others it's bringing out the best and i mean a, a little conversation like ours is is maybe not going to inspire someone in that moment but i mean it's it does it gives me pause to think about it sorry that just that just sort of came into my head as as you were talking there Oh yeah, no, yeah. I think you're absolutely right. It goes. It just speaks to the power of art in all its forms, uh, as you said earlier. Just throughout difficult times like this, 
the power to have stories uh, in any form uh, to kind of tap into what we're feeling. Um, it's uh, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly honoured to be to be a part of that and belong to that community. Mm. Let's talk about that sort of balance of opposites, though, and go go from loss to friendship, um, and especially the ways that you explore Jane's close relationships. Uh, and here I'm particularly interested in the evolving relationship between Jane and Violet. And what really interested me uh, is just the fact that, you know, to look at the way it's the way you're going to find it in a bookstore, this is a young adult novel. I wonder though, do we give these readers enough credit in their dealings with their emotional worlds? And, and was that something that you wanted to offer these readers? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that one of the, the, the worst things adults can do is to, to talk down to children and, and teens. Um, we, we really don't give them uh, enough credit. Uh, I mean, there's so many kids out there who are so who are far more progressive uh, than, than adults. Uh, and, you know, the, the, I think the future is looking, looking bright. Um, but, I, yeah, I, I think that in, in terms of friendship and the, and the relationship between Jane and Violet, Violet's this kind of firecracker of an eight-year-old who lives... Uh, she's the daughter of uh, the Hollows, who are kind of Jane's keepers, uh, the minders. They, they, they've, stuffed, they've stuffed her in the, in the basement, but Jane struck up a friendship with this, with this girl uh, who's kind of just fascinated by, by the cursed one living mm-hmm. in her basement. Um, and uh, for me, friendship is, I mean, it's, it's so important for, for all of us. And again, it's quite often stories focus on just a purely uh, romantic relationship. But I think, I think uh, friendships are so, so important to have within stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, every, everybody loves a good sidekick, uh, of course. Uh, and uh, uh, unraveling and, and kind of exploring that relationship uh, as it evolves between Jane and Violet has been one of the absolute joys of writing this book, and I've heard from so many people who have just uh, really loved uh, kind of where I where I took it. So that's been one of the best things since the book's come out. Uh, people really championing their relationship, which is it's just been lovely. Were you consciously playing with the idea of the sidekick, though? Because as as Violet, particularly her character, un, uh, evolves, uh, I've already mentioned her her skill. There are times when Jane definitely looks much more like a sidekick. Yeah, absolutely, and I, I I love playing with that with that notion. Like there are times where, and Jane even even says like at at some point, like she should kind of be the hero. Mm. Uh, and I think we all feel like that that sometimes that we're we're not quite up to scratch, uh, and that our friends are better than us at things. Um, but uh, that that is again just such a it's such a fascinating interplay between that because it's kind of like well, but but Jane is the hero. Jane is the one at the center of this, whether she likes it or not, and she she has to step up. But Jane also does have some skills that where Violet is is kind of uh, lacking a bit. Uh, we see that particularly in a bit a bit in book two, where Jane's uh, compassion, uh, where Violet can be a little bit quick to judge and dismiss. Uh, Jane's learning to listen to herself and the manner. Um, so yeah, just that that interplay was just such a joy. I love I love writing good banter between between characters. And and the the banter is actually terrific. I love I love the voices that you evoke. Uh, now the manor. The manor is this incredible place. You've you've sort of described it as this almost interdimensional space connecting worlds, and through it we discover these incredible worlds. And I couldn't help but notice Blue Haven has in its past a, 
an unspeakable plague that has shaped the history of its people. <laughs> similarly, yeah. yeah, similarly, Arakan, if I've pronounced that correctly, Arakan, where Jane finds herself in book two, has been decimated by war and by a sort of changes wrought through man or the inhabitants. Do you, do you find in writing fantasy a way to think about destruction and the way destruction sort of plays out in the world around us? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, part of the reason why I did that, I, I, it just creates so much uh, tension and a, and a really rich history. That's kind of what I wanted to evoke throughout throughout both books and, and all of them, because I do have another, like a second duology planned after this one, which is books three and four. Um, that sense of that these characters are really just the latest stage, in, in like the latest stage of a story. There's so much building up before that uh, that's gone on before they've we've kind of hit the ground running. Um, I think like it, it just grounds a story in, in reality because it's the truth about, about our world. You look into the history, and a lot of it is destruction and devastation. Um, there's obviously a lot of beautiful things there as well, but history does tend to focus on those big, those big bad moments. Mm. Um, so it was just about creating a, a real world, really, and that unfortunately does involve a lot of destruction. Now, I thought, um, before I let you go, Jeremy, I wanted to take us, take us back to how we actually kind of got today's interview happening. Now, yes, yeah, you and, you and I, we met years ago, and I do still remember a time sort of sitting around in a group, I, I think it was so, a park in Sydney, and you were discussing your process, the way you plan, and you sort of storyboard your writing, and this was obviously what was to become the Jane Doe books. Um, oh. But today, the, the, you know, that was when we met. Today, though, grew out of the, the hashtag Books for Fieries fundraiser that was going on in January. It did so much for communities during the summer bushfire crisis, which, which can feel like a lifetime ago. Now oh, we I find know. ourselves, yeah, in the middle of, of another crisis. But you're, you're actually at the moment in a regional area. Um, I wondered, what's it, what's it like uh, now a month or so from, you know, the fires kind of officially going out? Oh man, it's 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 honestly so surreal because I'm I'm down in a, a town called Naruma on the south coast of New South Wales, and that was kind of at like the epi, one of the many epicenters uh, in, of the country for the fire devastation. So we were here on the farm, and it was the fire was kind of at our at our doorstep, just beyond the mountain. There was smoke uh, just in in the in the air in our lungs that we had to evacuate. It was absolutely terrifying, uh, and again supermarket shelves were empty uh people were were kind of panicking but in in town everybody was really pulling together which was wonderful mm. and now to have uh two months later to be back here again and the grass is green things are regrowing uh the air is clean the sky is blue but the you know the, the shelves are still empty again uh not from the fires but from the fears about the coronavirus and everything so it, it's really surreal but it, again uh I mean, country folk are just wonderful. Everybody's just going about their their business. Um, but there is a lot of there is a lot of uh, hesitation and, and fear. I think at the moment. Yeah, and a part of this, you know, we're we're necessarily shutting down our lives and having to do um, do social distancing. People are isolating for theirs and for other people's health. But it makes it a really tough time for artists and the arts community, and that includes authors. Um, with a new book in the world, you know, being able to do events, get the word out, must be. You know, how is that impacting you? Having a new book out in the world, I, it, it's tough, and I'm certainly, like you say, not the only one going through it. I mean, uh, my my book came out end of end of January. There are some people whose books are coming out this month, and they're really feeling it. 
so we're all we're all struggling a bit. I've had all of my events and uh, extra kind of tour activities cancelled. Uh, so that that means it does mean a loss of appearance fees. Uh, I, I think I guess sales would be down across the board for, for everybody. Mm. Um, so I think it is it is really important to to uh, get out there and support uh, the, the artists around the community, not just authors, but but everyone. Um, with the with the fire devastation, the fire crisis, we all kind of really banded together uh, to to show up for everybody. So I, 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 it would be, I don't know, I guess it'd be nice if, if people kind of rallied around us uh, in a time like like this. Would be great and support your local independent bookshop. There are some lists going around with uh, books and publishing online. Uh, a lot of bookshops are offering free delivery service to houses, people who are self isolating or quarantined. Um, everybody's really pulling together and doing what they can to, to to get us through this really difficult time. Yeah, and I'm gonna I'm gonna keep reiterating that to anyone who wants to stand a meter and a half away from me and listen to me or listen to me on the radio that being able to support artists is so important and books books are are going to offer you a chance to escape. They're going to offer you a chance to process and some I guess some emotional perspective on what's going on and those local bookstores uh we will make sure that that link goes up uh, on associated to ser and and final draft type uh, online spaces so people can find that and and support it's a double hit really isn't it you get to support your local bookstore and your local author that's that's the way i'm looking at it jeremy absolutely what what, what better thing can you do <laughs> Um, so, look, I am speaking with Jeremy Lachlan. We are discussing The Key of All Souls. It is the second book in the Jane Doe Chronicles. Uh, I highly recommend if you are finding yourself with extra time to read and you have other people in your life who like a kick-ass read, a lot of adventure, some great, great banter, to check out the Jane Doe Chronicles. Jeremy, thanks so much for coming on Final Draft, even from a distance. Thank you so much, mate. It was wonderful. That's it for this great conversation with Jeremy Lachlan. Jeremy's latest novel is Jane Doe and the Key of All Souls, and it's out now through Hardy Grant. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at two SER's Broadway studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. If you want to keep up with the latest in books, writing and literary culture, and look, at this time where so many of us are feeling isolated and we're having to spend a lot more time by ourselves to stop the spread of coronavirus, please join us in this sort of online community and, and share the books that you love. Uh, we're on, we're, I'm on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2 ser Send me a message about a book you're loving. Uh, if you want to talk about some of the stuff that we talk about on the show, I'd love to connect and um, and share the love of books wherever you are in the world. And if you want more of our Final Draft Great Conversations, you can subscribe. I'm going to do everything that I can, remotely or otherwise, to be bringing you a new great conversation every week. My name is Andrew Popel. Uh, I'll be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. Till then, stay safe wherever you are and happy reading. Bye now.